everyone, and welcome to Historically Haunted. I am your host, Ariel. Thank you all so much for joining me for today's episode. I hope you guys are all doing well. It is already August, which means that many kids and adults are going back to school. And that's why today I will be covering some famous haunted colleges found in the United States. I have covered a few haunted colleges in the past, but this will be my first school-centric episode that I have done. A few listeners helped me shape this episode. Listener Denise suggested Albion College, and that sparked the idea for me to do a haunted colleges episode. I got a few other school suggestions over the last few months when I was moving across the country. So I would like to thank all of you so much for your wonderful suggestions. I hope that you guys enjoyed my new intro music. I have been looking for someone to make a new track for a while now, and I finally found an artist who was able to create exactly what I wanted. He really knocked it out of the park with this fun and spooky historical mashup, and I really like it. I hope that you guys like it too. I found this music producer on the website Fiverr.com, and he did an amazing job. He listened to my request and worked with me to get everything thing right even when I made a technical error on my end. So if anyone is looking for some cool intro music or outro music or even segue music for your YouTube channel or maybe you also run a podcast, I would highly recommend working with Frederico who goes by the username skein underscore music on fiverr.com. I will have a link to his page down below in the show notes for anybody interested. So thank you so much Frederico for making me such a fun and spooky intro. I am beyond happy that I finally have a personal and unique sounding intro. I'm also currently working with a wonderful graphic designer named Allison to create a new cover art and ghost mascot for the show, and I can't wait to share it with all of you when it's done. Just to let all of you know really quick that I am not going to post a new episode next month because I am in the process of making all three of the Halloween episodes before the month of October. So I need the time to write, record, and edit them all, but I will post an old bonus episode for you guys in the middle of September, so that way you will have something to listen to for that month. But don't worry, because you will be getting three full new episodes to enjoy during the month of October to celebrate Halloween. I have my Patreons to thank for my new intro music and logo that I'm making for the show. You guys help me move my podcast in the right direction, so thank you all so much. I have some new Patreons to thank today, and they are Ghost Panda, Bailey, Allie, Myra, Jessica, and Denise. Thank you so much, everybody. We have a lot of fun on my Patreon page. I share a lot of extra history and ghost stories with my Patreons. While I don't have as much time to make bonus content as other creators, I do have about 33 bonus episodes now available so that's kind of a nice back catalog to listen to. Together we have had fun covering things like time slips, the backstories of everyday superstitions and nursery rhymes, haunted railroads, and history of popular holidays, extra haunted locations, and even the history of dragons. I have also started to post ad-free episodes for just my Patreons. I am hoping to get some sponsors for the show in the next few months so I have decided to put ad-free episodes on my Patreon page from now on. I also send out annual Halloween thank you cards to all of my active paying Patreons. So if you would like to receive a Halloween card in the month of October, please make sure to sign up for my Patreon page before September 29th. That is the deadline for this year's Halloween cards. I'm making custom cards this year and I need to pre-order them. So I need to know how many I need to order. And I don't want people to miss out on these cards if you would like one too. So again, that's September 29th. That is the deadline for these cards and I only send them to my active paying Patreon members. If anyone is interested in becoming a Patreon, you can check out my link down below in the show notes. 
For just a dollar a month, you can get access to bonus episodes that I make when I have extra time, historical photos of places that I talk about on my episodes, exclusive ad-free episodes, and you will get a thank you card with a logo sticker in the mail after your first monthly payment. I also wanted to quickly thank people who have been so kind enough to leave me a review on iTunes. So a big thank you to PandaPerson1040, MickeyH94, and a username that I'm not going to say on my show, not that I don't think it's funny, but I do have kids that listen to my show and that is the only reason why I'm not going to say it out loud but you know who you are so thank you all so much for the kind reviews leaving a written review on iTunes is a quick and free way to help support the show the more written reviews I receive will help the show to pop up when people are searching for a new paranormal podcast to try also leaving a starred review on Spotify is another quick and free way to help support the show all right with all of that out of the way let's hurry up and make our way to class before the bell rings because you don't want to be left alone in the hallways of these haunted colleges. started not long after the British first arrived in America. During the late 17th century, the British were using colleges as a form of higher education to train young men to become ministers. After the British set up the main colonies in the New World, several churches began to set up their own colleges. After America won its independence from Great Britain in 1776, and colleges still remained a popular option, and over time they slowly evolved into being a place for young, almost only white men, to learn important life skills that they could then take with them to go out into the world and become successful in their field. They would go to college to learn things like business, philosophy, law, science, journalism, poetry, and medicines. These schools were considered pompous and upper-class learning, even though many immigrants with no high prospects also attended. These colleges helped many men who started life with nothing or very little become rich and successful businessmen. In 1837, the first historically black college, Cheney University of Pennsylvania, opened its doors to give free people of color a chance to get better access to higher education. After the Civil War ended, many more of these campuses were created to give newly freed African Americans a chance to earn an education. By the mid-1800s, women were also allowed to attend women's-only colleges. However, in the beginning, women could only take select classes and was very limited compared to what the men could learn. Instead of taking the same classes, women were forced to take extracurricular activities that was meant to get them ready to become a good homemaker. Etiquette training, homemaking, and piano lessons were standard for a time. Women did eventually fight for the right to attend all classes that were 
available to men. It was a slow grind, but eventually women won that right to attend and be taught the same subjects as men. Eventually, new reforms were created that desegregated all schools, and almost all colleges are now co-ed. Today, the college experience is way different than when it started. What began as pompous and gentlemanly turned into, well, major partying, televised sporting events, exciting marching band performances, and crippling amounts of student loan debt that people are still trying to pay off years and years after graduating. However, many people still have fond memories of their college years. And while all of this is exciting and it is fun to remember the days when you were trying to pick out your college dorm room decorations, colleges are also known for having a dark side to them. Many well-known colleges are hundreds of years old. Some have been used as hospitals during battles, both in during the Revolutionary War and the American Civil War. For instance, I talked about hauntings found at Gettysburg College in my last Gettysburg episode that I made. All colleges have urban legends attached to them, but many colleges have also accumulated their own true dark history, from freak accidents to murder to club initiations gone wrong. The college experience ended up being the last moments for some students. For this episode, I have compiled a list of famous haunted colleges in the United States. I will start each location by going over a brief history of the school and then discuss the strange and scary encounters that students and staff alike have claimed to have had while wandering the halls of these old prestigious campuses. Colleges might be a place for learning, but they're also a dark place of secrets, stories of occult-esque activity, and unexplainable events that keep students looking over their shoulders because they could have sworn that they just saw a shadow dart down an empty hallway. starting off our haunted colleges tour with Kenyon College. Kenyon College is a private liberal arts college located in Gambier, Ohio. The school was founded in 1824 by Philander Chase. Philander was a bishop of the First Episcopal Church of Ohio. In 1818, the bishop wanted to start a seminary in Ohio to train more clergy members. He was unable to get support in the States, so he traveled to England and was able to get the backing for the school from George Kenyon, 2nd Baron Kenyon, Lord Gambier, and the poet and playwright Hannah Moore. The school opened in December of 1824 in Washington, Ohio. Bishop Chase was unsatisfied with the original location, so he quickly purchased 8,000 acres of land in Knox County. According to local legend, Bishop Chase climbed a hill in Knox County and said, well, this will do, and that's what made his decision to buy the land. He did so on July 24, 1825. He also named the hill Gambier Hill. The first building on the new campus was completed in 1829. Famous graduates include Edward M. Stanton, who became Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of War, and Ohio Governor and the 19th President of the United States, 
Rufford B. Hayes, along with Supreme Court Justices David Davis and Stanley Matthews. In the entertainment field, graduates included actor Paul Newman, comedian Jonathan Winters, and cartoonist Bill Patterson, who created Calvin and Hobbes. Kenyon College has some traditions that have lasted more than 190 years. One is that their first-year students are required to sign an oath and participate in the first year sing. Students gather on the steps of Rose Hall and sing Kenyon school songs. The day before students graduate, they meet again on the steps and sing the same songs. Another tradition is that you should never step on the seal located in front of Pierce Dining Hall. If a student steps on the seal, it is said that they will not graduate from the school. How haunted is Kenyon College? Well, it is haunted enough that they hold ghost tours on campus. I didn't think a college would do this, but apparently more do than I ever thought would. In fact, there have been so many ghost sightings over the years at Kenyon College that its archives has its own file dedicated to them called the Ghost Folder. We will be starting off with what is today the Bolton Dance Studio. This was once the location of the college's pool. Kenyon's college first pool was an indoor pool nicknamed the Greenhouse. Built in 1953, the building was constructed with the ceiling having 1,300 glass panels that came to a peak over the pool itself. The pool was small compared to others and when they would hold swimming meets, the lane each swimmer had to swim in was so narrow it made it hard to swim their best due to extremely choppy waters. The pool itself was a 25-yard pool and only 30 feet wide. It also had two diving boards but the pool was only 9 feet deep and people who dived in to the pool were at risk of getting hurt themselves. As you can imagine, the pool caused problems for the swimmers. People on the swim team began to get hurt while just swimming practice laps. And according to people who attended swim meets, the sound of the water and cheering of the crowd was so deafening due to poor acoustics that the swimmers could not hear their coaches' instructions, causing confusion and collisions in the water. The glass panels on the ceiling were known to leak and even break during bad storms, glass onto the pool and it's nicknamed the greenhouse because especially in the summer it got so hot in there it was unbearable. Regardless the pool remained in use until the 1980s when a new larger pool was built. Regardless of all of these challenges Kenyon has had one of the best swimming and diving teams in the United States and now the team has a new high-end aquatic center. After the swim team relocated the pool was covered with a wooden floor and the building remodeled and the name was changed to Bolton Dance Studio. However, the building itself seems to keep forgetting that it's not a pool anymore. People have reported the residual sounds of splashing, diving boards bouncing, and even the sound of lockers slamming. A large puddle of water has also been known to appear randomly where the pool was once located. Another strange thing that happens at the old pool area are the sudden appearance of wet footprints that lead from the old pool to where the lockers used to be. There is also a story of a secure guard who was locking up for the night. He crossed an empty and quiet dance floor when he suddenly heard the sound of wet footsteps behind him. He turned around to see what had just been a completely dry floor 
covered in a large pool of water. He watched as wet footprints suddenly appeared and looked as if they were stepping towards him. He ran out of the building and called for backup. Another guard came to see what was going on and both the men entered the building and saw the same puddle of water on the ground. As they watched, the large puddle dried up in seconds. Urban legend tells of a young student in the 1940s who bounced too high on the pool's diving board, smashing his head through the glass panel snapping his neck and then falling into the water below. Now that is what people think the splashing and the bouncing of the diving board is and also that's why a large body of water appears out of nowhere but there is no evidence that this has ever happened. This is just what I think. I think the dance studio is experiencing some kind of residual energy and the urban legend around the student came after the fact trying to explain the hauntings but that's just my take on it. I'd love to know what you guys think. While the old school pool death might just be an urban legend, let's talk about some real school tragedies that many people think have led to some legit hauntings. During the fall of 1905, a first year student named Stuart Lathrop Pearson was about to join the Delta Kappa Epsilon fraternity. Stuart's father was also a DKE alum and he had come to the school to watch his son's initiation. On the night of October 28th at 9 o'clock p.m., Stuart's father wished his son good luck and went to the West Wing Bullseye in Old Kenyon Residence Hall to wait for the ceremony to start. The West Wing Bullseye is a large round window that is located on the west side of the Old Kenyon Residence Hall. After his father left, the fraternity brothers led Stuart down to a nearby railroad trestle bridge. They then pinned a creepy note to his chest with the words, this will do for this time, but if we come again, it will be worse. Then the group left him there. The boys were confident that no trains would be coming down the tracks that evening because they all claimed that they had pre-checked the schedule for trains. About an hour later, the boys returned to fetch him for the ceremony, and when they got to the trestle, they found Stuart's mangled body 20 yards from where they left him with the creepy note still pinned to his chest. Turns out an unscheduled train did end end up traveling down the tracks that night and sadly the driver did not see Stuart in the dark. He also didn't know that he had hit someone because he never stopped. Local papers and national headlines claimed that the boy had been tied to the tracks and something more sinister was at play, but the fraternity brothers, the alumni, and the college all disputed those claims. After a police investigation, they did not bring any punishment to anyone, and the police thought that Stewart had simply fallen asleep on the tracks, but I personally don't buy that. And apparently no one else did either because what I found online, there have been whispers of a dark cover-up and conspiracy between the kids' parents, school officials, and the police that has circulated for years. And it actually got the college to have a pretty bad reputation. This became a pretty big scandal and attendance dropped for years after this happened. Today, the railroad tracks are a walking and biking path and people who have used it reportedly have seen a young man dressed in turn-of-the-century clothing walking along the path. As people slow down to get a better look at him, he vanishes. The ghost of Stuart also still hangs around his old
old room in the Kenyon residence hall. Security guards have reportedly seen the glowing light of a candle in Stewart's old bedroom window when students are away during summer and winter breaks. When they go to investigate, there's no one there or any sign of a candle just being burned. The students now affectionately call the ghost Stewie, and they claim that he returns to the West Wing bullseye on the anniversary of his death, and sadly looks out of the bullseye window over the railroad tracks where his father once waited for him to return. The legend is so strong that many boys who have stayed in Stewart's old bedroom are afraid to stay the night on October 28th. They often try to sleep over with their friends or in their girlfriend's dormitories. That's pretty bad or they try to sneak into other dorms just to spend the night. Some students have become so afraid of the ghostly return of Stuart that they have slept in the common area of the building together just in case. The West Bullseye window is large, and even though the students lock it from the inside, it often is found open, and many people believe that this is Stuart, and he likes to keep the window open. People who sleep in the West Bullseye room have reportedly been touched with icy and unseen hands and heard their names being called from the dark. Another spooky thing that happens on the 28th of October, it's said that in the evening you can hear the ghostly sound of the train whistle from the train that sadly killed Stuart. Stuart is not the only ghost found at Old Kenyon. On a cold night in February of 1949, Old Kenyon Residence Hall held the largest dance of the year. The party lasted until 3 a.m. and by 4 a.m. the women who attended the dance had gone home and the last of the partiers had gone to bed. A college security guard was just leaving the building after making sure that the party was over when he noticed a glow coming from the windows of the middle section of the building. The guard ran back to the building to warn people inside, but it was too late. The fire spread quickly, and with just a few minutes, the whole building was on fire. Sadly, nine students died in the blaze. Three died after jumping from the second story windows, six were overcome by asphyxiation, and one died in the hospital a few days later due to severe burns to his body. This was a major tragedy, and it was awful for everyone involved. The school was really upset over this whole thing, as they would be. I mean, this is terrible. Even though it happened though, they did decide to rebuild Kenyon Hall. So they built a new one on top of the old one. And what they did was they salvaged what they could use from the original building to add it back into the new building. They also added the iconic bullseye windows back onto the new building. Ever since the fire, the new Kenyon Hall has had several paranormal claims. Security guards have been called to the building more times than any on campus. One evening during a summer program, Program, campus security got a call from terrified students. When security got to the dorm, they found a big group of students outside the building and they had to calm them down enough to tell them what had happened. The group of students told the security guards that they had been standing in the hallway when suddenly they looked up to see a few pairs of legs sticking down through the ceiling and these legs began to walk toward the students. The group of students freaked out and ran out of the building and then called security. The security guards searched the building 
building and didn't find anyone who didn't belong. But to the security guards, this apparition made sense because when Old Canyon burnt down and the new building was rebuilt after the fire, the new building's plans did not line up with the original. So the security guards assumed that this was just residual energy and it's making today's students see activity from the original floor plan from when the original old building was still there. And the paranormal claim of these legs sticking out of the ceiling and walking around is still being experienced to this day. Security guards have also been called to the building with claims of students waking up in the middle of the night to someone pounding on their door and hearing people shouting, get out, fire. One student was asleep in his room one night when he was shaken awake by unseen hands. When the student sat up, he heard someone scream, Ed, wake up, fire. It was only after this incident that the student learned that the room he was in used to be the room of Edward Brout. Edward tragically died in the fire. One of the most famous and eerie ghost stories happened on the anniversary of the fire. One of the most famous and eerie ghost stories happened on the anniversary of the fire. A student said that he entered his room to find a 1949 yearbook sitting on his desk. The book was flipped open to a page that had the victim's names of the fire listed on it. No one had entered the room because the boy had just locked the door on his way out, got down to the end of the hallway, remembered that he had forgotten something, went back to his room, unlocked the door, and there was the yearbook. And he'd never seen that book before and nor had anyone else in the building at that time. Where exactly the book came from is still a mystery to this day. The Church of the Holy Spirit is said to be haunted by the founder of the school, Bishop Philander Chase. His apparition has been seen in the organ loft on many occasions. He has also been known to slowly dim the lights during ghost tours. Some believe that he does not approve of these ghost tours being given on campus and especially in the church. And dimming the lights is his way of telling people to leave. The chapel's residence is haunted by a student who sadly fell down the elevator shaft in 1979. The ghost of this student has been seen throughout the building. He has been known to turn lights on and off, turn the showers off while people are showering. I find that very rude. I would hate that. And people have reported the sounds of disembodied screams and shouts from the elevator shaft. One night in 1995, security guards spent hours chasing down screaming phone calls from students claiming that the lights, showers, and the elevator were all operating by themselves. So, if you ever attend Kenyon College, don't be surprised if you run into a few ghosts while you're there. Our next haunted college is the University of Tennessee. The University of Tennessee was founded in Knoxville in 1794 by Reverend Samuel Currick, who served as the first teacher and president. He named the school Blount College in honor of Tennessee's first governor, William Blount. The school was located in one building in downtown. Reverend Currick taught seminary courses to all male students. The school was open to students from all denominations, but unfortunately the school struggled for 13 years due to low number of both students and teachers. The school was renamed in 1807 to East Tennessee College. The school was still struggling when Reverend Couric died in 1809. 
The school closed for several years until Reverend Dave Sherman was able to reopen East Tennessee College in 1820. Finances improved and the school began to grow. Then Thomas Jefferson recommended that the school leave the downtown location and find some land in order to expand. In 1828, the school bought 40 acres at Barbara Hill, today just called The Hill. The college name changed again in 1840 to East Tennessee University. The school also remained open to students of any religious denomination. East Tennessee University remained open when the Civil War began in 1861. Even though Tennessee had seceded from the Union, Eastern Tennessee did not widely practice slavery, so there was more of a pro-Union sediment in this part of the state. Tennessee provided more volunteers for the Union than all other Confederate states combined. Most of these volunteers were from Eastern Tennessee. The Confederate Army ended up sharing the campus with the students and the Confederate soldiers that were wounded in nearby battles were being housed on the campus as well. However, by the spring of 1862, most of the students had joined the military. University President Joseph Ridley resigned and two professors left. The Board of Trustees decided to close the university during the war. Confederate troops remained on campus, though, and in the fall of 1863, Union troops were able to force the Confederate Army out of Knoxville. The Union Army created an eastern fortification on the hill at Eastern Tennessee College. They enclosed the three college buildings located located there and named it Fort Byington in honor of an officer from Michigan who had been killed during the Battle of Knoxville. The hill was used as headquarters, barracks, and a hospital for African-American troops. The Confederacy tried to retake Knoxville by attacking nearby Fort Sanders in November of 1863. During the battle, the hill was heavily damaged by artillery from Confederate guns being shot from across the river. The Union Army had to cut down most of the trees to create barricades. The Union Army also damaged some of the buildings with their own cannons misfiring as they were shooting back across the river. The Union Army managed to keep control of Fort Sanders and the hill remained there until the end of the war in 1865. After the Union troops left, the college reopened in 1866, but they used the downtown building while repairs were being made to the main campus. In 1862, the U.S. Congress had passed the Morrill Land Grant Act, which allowed states and territories to create colleges for the purpose of improving agricultural and mechanic arts. East Tennessee College was selected under this act to receive extra funds. However, the Civil War delayed the ability for the school to take advantage of the new funding. In 1869, the Tennessee legislature officially declared the college as a federal land-grant college. The name of the college was changed for the last time to the University of Tennessee and focused on teaching agriculture, mechanic engineering, and military classes. A medical program was added soon after. In 1887, the military program was eliminated and female students began attending. Today, the Knoxville campus covers 910 acres and has 294 buildings. In the fall of 2021, 31,700 students were admitted to the university. UT is made up of 11 colleges that offer over 900 programs of study. UT 
student athletes are known as the Volunteers, and their sports teams compete in the SEC Conference in the Division I of the NCAA. Pat Summit is one of the most successful coaches at UT. She coached the women's basketball team for 38 years, ending on April 18, 2012. Her overall record was 1,098 wins and only 208 losses. Her teams won 8 NCAA and 32 SEC Conference titles. She retired after the 2011 and 2012 season because she was diagnosed with dementia and early onset Alzheimer's. Sadly, she passed away on June 28th, 2016 and I grew up watching Pat Summit coach and I watched her every single March Madness and I have got to say she's one of the best coaches I have ever watched on television. She was such a good coach that NBA uh, coaches would even study her <laughs> and want to be her and, and study her, the plays she would run and then mimic them in their own practices. So yeah, she was amazing. She also inspired a whole generation of young girls to want to play basketball at a higher level and um, her exciting games brought way more attention to college basketball for women and to the WNBA. So her contributions to women's sports is just incredible. And as you can tell, she was my favorite coach. And even though I didn't go on to play basketball at a higher level or anything, she still inspired me to work hard and continue doing what I love, even if it wasn't basketball, but she's definitely an inspiration. It still makes me sad to think that she's no longer with us on the basketball court. Other notable University of Tennessee students include athletes Peyton Manning and women's basketball player Candace Parker, who is amazing on the court. She is just so fun to watch. Other notable graduates are astronaut Scott Kelly and Jim Justice, the current governor of West Virginia. UT has a lot of history, so it won't surprise any of you to hear there's a ton of active hotspots on the campus. There are actually seven most active hotspots located on the school grounds, and we will be starting off with the Tyson Alumni House. The Tyson Alumni House was owned by U.S. Senator General Lawrence Tyson and his wife Betty. They shared many memories here, raising two children and their family dog, Botina. Botina was given to Lawrence and Betty's daughter as a gift from the son of President Ulysses S. Grant. Botina was cherished by the family until she passed away. After she died, her body was buried in the backyard of the property. After Lawrence and Betty passed away, their daughter Isabella Tyson Giplin donated the house to St. John's Episcopal Church in 1935. With the condition that their dog's resting place would never be disturbed. She also had a legal gravestone added to the resting place, making it the only legal gravestone on campus. In 1954, the University of Tennessee purchased the house to be used as an alumni house. Ever since, there have been reports of Botina's spirit running through the house's hallways and playing in the backyard. Her barks and howls have also been heard at night. Up next is the Hoskins Library. Hoskins Library was built in 1931, and the library has a few spirits. One of them is more of a poltergeist known as Evening Primrose. I have no idea why they call her that, but she has been seen throughout the library. Primrose is known for playing with the lights, knocking books off of shelves, and hiding items that you just sat down. She also enjoys playing with the elevator buttons. This is also something I've never heard of before, but it's said that her presence smells like baking corn 
cornbread, which is weird and makes me wonder what used to be on this hill before the college was built. I mean, I couldn't find anything that says like there used to be an old log cabin here or something before they started building the college, but that is such a weird description. Out of all the smells, baking cornbread, but I don't hate it because I do love the smell of baking cornbread. If I ever ran into this ghost, I'd probably just be really hungry afterwards. Another spirit that has been seen many times is said to be the library's former director. She has been known to shush people who are being too loud in the library, and she also likes to keep the books where they belong. Shh. Let's quietly check out our books and move on to Perkins Hall. This building was built not too far from the original Bolton Hall. Bolton Hall was built in 1900, but it was demolished in 1979 to make room for a new Perkins Hall. When Bolton Hall was constructed, they discovered several bodies of Union soldiers who had died during various Civil War battles that happened on the campus. These bodies were relocated to the National Cemetery. But as we have learned, every time we cover graveyards or Civil War, history on this podcast, some bodies get missed, and disturbing graves is not always the best thing to do. Many students and staff have claimed to see apparitions near the former gravesite. While Bolton Hall was still standing, there were ghost stories of Confederate and Union soldiers who would roam the corridors at night. Some students have claimed to have seen soldiers standing together comparing maps before they vanished before the students' very eyes. Our next haunted spot is The Hill. Today, The Hill is the location of several different academic buildings, and they are some of the oldest on campus. The Hill is said to be haunted by some truly terrifying entities. I say entities because it's not just ghosts that you will find in this location. Sightings of the Wampus Cat have been seen on campus ever since it first opened. A Wampus Cat is from Cherokee legend. They are said to be a spiritual, glowing, green-eyed cat that has mystical powers. The Wampus Cat is also known as the Cherokee Death Cat. It's said to be larger than your average cougar or mountain lion, and the fur is jet black. They also have huge fangs and massive paws, and they are very fierce. According to Cherokee legend, a wampus cat was originally a woman who was cursed by tribal leaders as punishment for hiding beneath the pelt of a large wild cat. She did this to witness a sacred ceremony that she was not invited to, but curiosity drove her to watch it anyway. She is also said to be a shapeshifter. Ever since the wampus cat has been seen throughout the southeastern region of the United States, it has been blamed for killing livestock from North Carolina to Georgia. It is said that if you see a wampus cat, it is a symbol of impending doom or death. Many students have run from the building on the hill terrified, claiming that they were chased by a large glowing green-eyed cat. If a wampus cat doesn't scare you, how about about a Barghest. A Barghest is said to be a wolf-like spirit that has jet black fur and coal black eyes. He also has long sharp fangs. A Barghest is a kind of a hellhound minus the glowing red eye. The Barghest comes to us from Northern English folklore and it's described as a spiritual hound that is also an omen of certain death. As to why there's a wampus cat and a bargast here, we have no idea, but it is very interesting. If a wampus cat and a bargast doesn't scare you, how about the ghost in the bowler hat? There's a ghost that is said to walk the sidewalks of the hill. He has been known to mostly appear in the evening. 
evenings. When he is seen, he is wearing an early 1900s clothing with a bowler hat. When you spot him, he is very distinct. He walks with his hands behind his back and his head bent down. He is a very bold ghost because he has been seen on the sidewalks when they are extremely crowded and just walking among the students. However, you don't want to look at him too long. It's said that it's better to ignore him because if you take too much interest in him, he has been known to tip his hat in your direction, revealing a gaping hole in the side of his head. Many believe that this gentleman was a former student who committed suicide after his girlfriend rejected his proposal only to marry someone else. If Civil War soldiers, ghost dogs, wampus cats, and bowler hat ghosts were not enough for you, how about we add in some buildings built on a Native American burial ground. The McClung Museum, Reese Hall, and the Agricultural Campus was built on Native American burial grounds. The spirits found in these buildings are shadow people, which terrifies me. I don't know about you guys, but there's something about shadow people that freaks me out. Students and staff alike have seen them darting down hallways and between rooms. Dark shadowy figures and strange looking creatures have also been seen wandering the area. Our last location at UT is Strong Hall. Until 2008, Strong Hall was a women's only residence hall. The building was named for Sophia Strong when one of her sons, Benjamin Rush Strong, gave money to the university after he passed away. He required that the money must be used to build a residence hall for women only and be named after his mother. He also required that a flower garden be planted in the courtyard. The building opened in 1925, and ever since, the residents of Strong Hall have reported seeing the ghost of Sophia herself. The students call her Sophie, and she is not a malevolent spirit, but she has been known to be playful. Students have reported getting locked out of their rooms or bathrooms at random, only to have the door pop open again after moments of struggling with it. She also likes to hold lamps in the hallway, which is kind of cool. Kind of makes me think of the Haunted Mansion a little bit with the floating candelabra. Sophie also does not like disagreements or unladylike behavior. In a more memorable encounter with Sophie, two Strong Hall residents got into an argument and then started yelling at each other. The fight escalated until suddenly one of the girls fell silent mid-argument, looking behind the other student in terror. The other student turned around to see an apparition of Sophie standing in front of them. With her hands on her hips and she was glaring at the girls. The girls ran from the room in shock, but this did put an end to the argument. There is one room known as Sophie's room. This room is said to have so much paranormal activity that it's rare for students staying in that room to last the whole semester before requesting a transfer to another room or sometimes a new dorm entirely. next college campus, this one's going to be a little different because as of right now, no one is actually attending classes in this location, and that's the Albion State Normal School located in Albion, Ohio. The Idaho State Legislature agreed with the residents of Albion to open a school in the town in 1893. Most of the students came from farms and small towns near Albion. The purpose of the school was to train teachers because the population of Idaho was growing. 
The school suffered from low enrollment and low funding, but managed to remain open into the 20th century. But in 1946, the state of Idaho ordered a survey of the school to be done, and it was recommended that the school be closed unless it could increase their enrollment even more in the next five years. In order to attract more students, the name of the school was changed to Southern Idaho College of Education, and it became a four-year school. By 1951, the school had not met the enrollment requirements and the school was closed. The buildings remained vacant until 1957 when a Christian college opened on the campus and remained until 1969. The campus was then turned over to the city and they maintained the grounds. However, the property slowly deteriorated and remained abandoned. The property was purchased in 2007 at auction by the Mortensen family. Heather Mortensen and her husband Troy wanted to turn the old school into a retreat and event center. As of 2022, the campus is now called the Albion Campus Retreat. The venue provides lodging for corporate and church events. Miller Hall used to be the college dorm rooms, and today it is used for sleeping quarters for up to 65 guests. It has a gaming area, media room, and a dining hall. Outside, they offer barbecue grills, picnic tables, a swimming pool with a slide, and sand volleyball courts. They also offer disc golf, horseshoe pits, and they have a half-court basketball area. Comish Hall is the main event center. This building today is used for corporate meeting spaces and weddings. The president's cottage was also renovated and it can sleep up to 15 guests. When the Mortensons were considering buying the property, many of the local townspeople warned them not to purchase it. They told them that dark spirits lingered on the property due to satanic rituals that had been taking place on the property in the 1980s. Heather and Troy did not believe the rumors and thought that it was just leftover urban legends from the old satanic panic that had happened in the 80s, and they decided to buy the property anyway. At first, everything was calm on the property until they began renovations. The couple had hired a crew to come and renovate a few of the buildings to get started, and it didn't take long for the workers to begin experiencing some strange things. One day, some workers were in the old classroom when they witnessed a desk turn 360 degrees on its own. Workers began to hear voices and footsteps down empty hallways. They also heard sounds of metal metal scraping. As work continued, the sounds and strange activities progressed. The sound of normal footsteps turned into running, racing footsteps down hallways. Once an employee claimed that he was pushed up against a wall by an invisible force. The Mortensons needed to start earning some money to cover the renovations, so they thought it would be a good idea to open a haunted house in the beginning, but they only wanted to do it in October. As they began setting up for the event, the paranormal activity worsened. As the Mortensons began going through the buildings more frequently to set up, they noticed that there was a lot more satanic graffiti on the walls and floors than they originally thought. Workers from the haunted attraction began to experience hearing disembodied shouts and screams from empty buildings. Full-bodied apparitions were seen more frequently down hallways and darting around corners. A man named Kay Powell attended the Albion Normal School back when it was open, and later in life he returned to the school to work as a groundskeeper in the early 2000s. 
Hills. According to Kay, the school has always had an eerie vibe to it. Kay remembered rumors of the ghost of Miller Hall. During World War II, it was an all-boys dormitory, but during the middle of the war, there weren't enough young men to keep it open, and almost all of the young men were being called to war during that time, so Miller Hall was closed. But during the 1940s, the school decided to use the building for a haunted house to celebrate Halloween. During the haunted house, something weird happened to one of the students. A boy started to act really strange, and as Kay described it, he went a little nutty. According to reports, for shock value, people who had decorated the haunted house had hung a piece of raw meat from a rope at the bottom of the stairs. This student began to act like a wild animal and he started saying things that didn't make sense. He then ran down the stairs and grabbed the raw meat and tried to eat it. Teachers had to grab him and physically remove him from the building, all the while he was kicking and screaming obscenities. When the teachers removed him from the building and calmed him down, the student seemed to snap back into reality and claimed that he could not remember what had happened and that he lost a chunk of time. While this story could just be an urban legend meant to scare the students of Albion School later on, Kay returned to the property in the early 2000s to work as a groundskeeper and he began to experience some paranormal activity that he could not ignore. He started to hear voices and strange noises coming from empty buildings and one day he was on a riding lawnmower cutting grass when out of nowhere a metal metal pipe was thrown in front of him. Kay thought it was local kids somewhere on campus messing with them, and he got off his lawnmower to find them and yell at them, but after he searched the whole property, he realized that he was completely alone, and no one else was working there that day. Things escalated on the property when one of the staff members who worked on the haunted attraction experienced a seizure inside of one of the buildings. Many people believe that she was possessed, but I'm not sure why they think that way, but that's just what people say. They, she wasn't making any sense. And as soon as she left the building, apparently she was fine. So it was only to do in that building. But after this happened, Heather and Troy decided that they might need to call in a paranormal team to investigate and get some answers to what was going on. And who are you going to call when you have ghosts may, that may or may not be attached to satanic cults and demonic possession? Well, none other than Zach Baggins from Ghost Adventures, of course. So buckle in, everybody. I've got another Ghost Adventures episode real quick to break down. And I'm just doing the quick highlights from Season 19, Episode 9. So during this episode, the Mortensen had not finished renovations yet because they didn't know what to do with their property with so much paranormal activity going on. They weren't even sure if it was safe anymore to continue what they were doing, and they were worried that they would have to give it all up. This episode took place in 2017. So when Zach and his crew got there, they immediately noticed and started pointing out the satanic graffiti that was on the walls and the floor and all over the place inside the buildings. Then they began a spirit box session in Comish Hall. During the spirit box session, they heard multiple voices and they heard a voice shout, watch out. And then Zach asked, why should I watch out? And then a more sinister voice said, you'll be killed, which was a little creepy, I'll admit. Next, they went up to the second floor where there had been reports of people being scratched and pushed. And while they were there, Aaron did get his hand scratched and they were able to document it with a thermal camera. Around this same time, Jay started to feel sick and he started to have a pain behind his left ear. And he actually had to leave the building and you could see on camera that there were white marks starting to form on his skin. The Ghost Adventure crew had also 
also invited a worker who works on the haunted attractions and he has a small paranormal group that do conduct paranormal investigations inside the buildings when they are empty. So he came with them and he went into one of the classrooms by himself and he began to feel very sick and his ear began to throb as well. So this was all happening while Jay was outside with his ear hurting. So during this night investigation, there were so many physical things happening to the team that they had to stop and return to the hotel way before they usually would ever quit investigations. When they got to the hotel, they took a better look at Jay's ear and his ear was bright red and behind it, there were these scratch marks of a Roman numeral 11, which is XI. And then the next morning, the worker who had been with them the entire night before called Zach to tell him that he had been scratched behind his ear as well. And it looked like the Roman numeral number two had been left behind his ear. And he sent Zach a photo of this. And if you add these two numbers together, it does equal 13. And that's a little creepy if it's not staged, you know, all could be, but that's still weird. On the second night of investigations, Zach felt nervous about investigating at all. And he started to feel a little sick. So he went to lie down in their RV. And while Zach was asleep, Aaron, who was outside getting the camera equipment ready, heard Zach's voice yelling Aaron's name. Aaron thought it was Zach telling him it was time to start the investigation. So he walked over to the old gym area. When he got to the front of it, the door opened and slammed shut in front of Aaron. So Aaron ran over to the building to look inside and it was completely empty. Aaron then went looking for Zach and found him sound asleep in the RV. The rest of the night investigation was filled with EVPs and disembodied voices. They heard footsteps above them and behind them. And then Zach wanted to do a solo investigation inside Comish Hall. While he was just walking down the hallway, taking pictures with a full spectrum camera, suddenly out of nowhere, a huge banging noise came from one of the empty classrooms. This scared Zach so much that he actually like pressed himself up against the wall and then ran down the hallway sideways to the end of it just to get a better look at the whole building, I think, when he had his back against another wall. I'm not laughing at him because honestly, if that wasn't staged, it was pretty believable to me because uh, I would have done the same thing. Even if it wasn't paranormal, but if something is like still and there's no sound and it's completely quiet and there's a loud sound out of nowhere, most people jump. So so that's what I would have definitely probably done the same thing. It was such a loud bang that it shook one of the station cameras that had been left inside one of the classrooms that the sound came from. And in the footage, right after the banging noise and the camera stopped shaking, you can see a dark shadow move across the floor. While we may never know why there were spirits haunting the Albion State Normal School, if you're gonna go there for an event, don't be surprised if you see a couple ghosts while you're there. Next college is still active, and that's Penn State University. The beginnings of Penn State can be traced back to February 22, 1855, when the Farmers High School of Pennsylvania opened in Center County on 200 acres that were donated by local ironworker James Irvine. Hugh McAllister was selected to design the main building of the campus. His plan was to have a large multi-story building that would include students' residence, a lecture hall, office spaces, a chapel, 
a library, and science libraries. Construction on the five-story building began in 1857. Limestone blocks were taken from a limestone quarry located on campus, but due to financial troubles, the building was not completed. 69 students moved into the completed side of the building, which was the West Wing in 1857. In 1861, the Penn State president was able to get $50,000 from the state legislature to finish the main building. The school changed its name in 1862 to the Agricultural College of Pennsylvania. Women were allowed to attend the college beginning in the fall of 1871. After the passage of the Morrill Land Grant Act, Pennsylvania chose this college as its only land-grant college. The name changed for the last time in 1874 to the Pennsylvania State University. The school struggled to attract students with admissions falling to just 64 students in 1875. George W. Atherton became the school's president in 1882, and he worked hard to expand the curriculum. The mechanical arts program was expanded by adding carpentry and metalworking equipment. He also expanded the ag and liberal arts programs. The Department of Mechanical Engineering was added in 1886. Through these actions, Atherton was able to save the college from bankruptcy. Atherton's grave is located near Old Main. Today, Old Main is used as the campus's central administration building. Atherton's grave is marked by an engraved marble block that is placed in front of his statue. Atherton Hall was named in honor of his wife, Frances Atherton. In 1887, Old Main was remodeled and electric lights and central steam heat was added to the building. After a fire, the upper section of Old Main was remodeled to include a Gothic-style roof and clock tower. During the Great Depression years of the 1930s, Penn State created branch campuses across the state to help more students attend college. Today, Penn State has 24 campuses located across Pennsylvania. The college continued to develop as a research institution. By 1950, Penn State had won international recognition for its research in dairy science, building installation, diesel engines, and acoustics. In 1967, a College of Medicine and Teaching Hospital was founded. The university has two law schools and an online world campus. Today, Penn State is Pennsylvania's largest public university and has about 100,000 students per year. The university offers more than 275 majors. Their athletic teams compete in the NCAA Divisions I as a member of the Big Ten. The Nittany Lions are best known for their football and volleyball programs. As I talked about in the history portion of Penn State, many of the original buildings were made with limestone. There is a belief in the spiritual and paranormal communities that limestone is a natural conductor for energy. There have been many reports of paranormal activity in buildings made of limestone or buildings that have been constructed on top of limestone deposits. On the southeastern corner of Old Main Lawn, there is a stone marker that marks the spot of the original limestone quarry. This is where crews worked to build the original school. Among the members of the crew was a mule named Old Coley. Old Coley was a beloved figure among the students. When Old Coley passed away, the students and nearby farmers lobbied to preserve his skeleton and pay tribute to their beloved mule. Ever since, Old Coley's skeleton has been displayed in various buildings around the campus. In every building that he has been displayed, students and staff have reported hearing the sounds of hooves trotting down hallways. Others have claimed to hear the distant sound of a baying mule.
Old Botany is the oldest building on campus still having its original facade. One of the most frequently spotted ghosts is the spirit of Frances Atherton. Mrs. Atherton has been seen throughout the building, walking down hallways only to then vanish without a trace. Some have seen her looking out of windows at her husband's grave. Many think that her ghost likes to keep an eye on the modern day campus to make sure that her husband's grave is never disturbed. Another ghost haunts this building as well, but this ghost is more sinister. It's known to scare students who stay late working on homework. Students have claimed to see books go flying off of tables, hear the sound of running footsteps, and the sound of shattering glass has been heard in empty rooms. And once, a student claimed to have witnessed a carpet roll up on its own. The Patty Library is nicknamed the Stacks. It's named this because the library has a winding, multi-tiered maze of bookshelves. Students who are searching through the bookshelves have experienced some strange things. Many students have claimed to feel a sudden burst of cold air being blown down their necks while they are walking down the aisles of books. People have also seen an apparition of a young woman wandering through the stacks. Many believe that this is the ghost of Betsy Ardsma Spring. Betsy was tragically killed in the fall of 1969. Betsy was searching for books to use for her English paper on level two of the core stacks. Between 4.45 and 4.55 p.m., Betsy was stabbed between rows 50 and 51. Her killer fled the scene and students ran to her aid, but it was too late. The knife had severed her pulmonary artery. Her killer ran from the building and was never caught. The case remains unsolved to this day. Ever since, her ghost has been seen wandering level two of the library. Many believe she is still waiting for her murder to be solved. Up next is Atherton Hall. Atherton Hall was built just before World War II, and it was first used to house only female students. This female-only dormitory was looked after by house mothers. These women lived in special apartments on the bottom floor, and their job was to keep boys out and make sure that the ladies came back in time for curfew. To make sure that the ladies did not break curfew or try to sneak out of the building, all doors were equipped with sensors that would beep if the door was opened. The house mothers would also do regular rounds of bed checks multiple times per night. One of the house mothers was called Gumshoes. This was because her shoes made a distinct smacking noise as she patrolled the halls at night. Students who now stay in the building have claimed to hear the distant sound of Gumshoes patrolling the halls at night. Another ghost who has been seen multiple times throughout campus is the ghost of George Atherton. His ghost is described as a pleasant entity. Many believe he is just checking on his students and making sure that they have everything they need. He has also been seen coming and going from his own grave. Our last college for this episode is Wells College. Wells College was founded as a woman's college in 1868 in Aurora, New York by Henry Wells, co-founder of the Wells Fargo and American Express Company. Another sponsor for the school was E.B. Morgan, a shareholder of the New York Times. Its original name was Wells Seminary and the campus was constructed on land donated by Wells in Aurora, New York. The land was across from Wells Estate, Glen Park. Wells College 
College offered courses in language, music, history, mathematics, and science. And the first 10 years enrollment increased from 34 students to 170, and more buildings were added to the campus. One of the prominent students from this time was Frances Folsom, who graduated in 1885. She married President Grover Cleveland in the White House in 1886 and was the youngest First Lady of the United States. She was also the first First Lady to have graduated from college. She served on the College Board of Trustees for 50 years. Wells College has survived fires and medical emergencies during its history. On August 9, 1888, the main building caught fire at 1.30 in the morning and was completely destroyed. The fire was first spotted by a caretaker for the Wells estate who saw that the library on the second floor was ablaze. The library was directly above the kitchen, so it was assumed that the fire started there. Fortunately, the fire occurred during the summer break, so there was no one there to be hurt. Also, valuable paintings and other works of art had already been removed while repairs and renovations were being done for the summer. The main building was completely rebuilt in 1890. In 1907, the school had to manage manage a smallpox scare. Students showing symptoms of smallpox were sent to the infirmary on the fourth floor of the main building in order to be quarantined. In 1918, the Spanish flu epidemic was dealt with the same way with students being sent to the infirmary on the fourth floor of the main building. The infirmary wasn't very big, so even though the college only had 34 cases of influenza, some students had to be quarantined in the Pettibone House. Members of the faculty and students volunteered to help care for the sick and classes were canceled from October 14th to November 2nd. One case of polio was reported in 1931 and the student was quickly quarantined and class continued. Students were not allowed to leave the town of Aurora, but some students went home until the polio threat had passed. During the fall of 1957, the Asian flu caused a postponement of classes and activities for six weeks. Out of the 379 students attending the college at this time, 151 were quarantined. The infirmary filled up and overflow was once again set up in Pettibone House. I could not find any documentation about deaths at this college due to any health emergencies that I have mentioned, but there are some urban legends about it, so I'll get to those later on. After 136 years, on October 2nd, 2004, Wells College announced that it would become a co-ed school beginning in 2005. Students and some parents protested and even tried suing the school, but the lawsuit was rejected by the courts. So in 2005, men were admitted to the college. Today, Wells remains a private liberal arts school. In the fall of 2021, Wells College had about 335 full-time students enrolled. The athletic program has seven men's sports and eight women's sports. In the 2023-2024 season, the Wells Express teams will join the Allegheny Mountain Collegiate Conference, which is an NCAA Division III conference. The ghosts found at Wells College are definitely more on the urban legend side of things than actual truth, but they're still really freaky, and I feel like they're the perfect wrap-up to this episode. If you go to Morgan Hall, you might just feel something gently pushing you out of the building. This is because where Morgan Hall now stands used to be another building that burnt down. While the building 
building was on fire, a security guard named Max ran into the fire to try to save the students. He managed to save the last of them and hurried them outside, but when the girls got outside, they turned around to see that Max had disappeared. Many think that this gentle push from behind is the ghost of Max trying to make sure that you get out of the building safely. Another story about Max the security guard comes from a political science major who was staying late in Morgan Hall to study. When she finished, it was dark and she did not want to walk to her dorm room alone, so she called campus security to be escorted to her building. Right after she hung up the phone, a security guard appeared next to her. She was shocked at how fast this man just appeared in an empty room, but as she stared at him, this man walked right through her and then disappeared. This scared the student so much that she refused to go into Morgan Hall again. Another legend comes to us from Zabriskie Hall. It's said that there was a brilliant student who was doing groundbreaking scientific research. Her professor was impressed and he began giving her a lot of attention and helped her after hours. After this went on for a few months, the student found out that he was stealing her research and publishing it as his own. One night, she went to Zabriskie Hall to confront him, letting him know that she knew what he was doing. The professor got angry and then panicked. He grabbed a knife from a nearby table and stabbed her to death. Now it's said that people who study late in Zabriskie Hall may be approached by a ghostly woman who appears out of thin air and she asks you, will you please pull this knife out of my back? And if you pull the knife out, she will then take it and try to kill you with it. So remember when I said that I could not find any records of any major illness-related deaths that happened on campus during those major outbreaks? Well, the main building is said to be haunted by the students who died from those outbreaks. Now, I could not find any proof that this happened, but it could have, I don't know. I only am limited to what I can see on the internet, and there could be some old archives stuck away somewhere that I just can't get access to. So if this is true, and if students did die, please let me know um, later, either in a comment section or something Thing because I love learning the truth versus the legends of all of these places that I cover. So the legend says that there were so many people who died during these outbreaks that they had to quarantine the bodies from the rest of people on campus. So they put the deceased in a special room with a door that was painted red. And the legend is that that door is still there and no matter how many times they paint new color, the red color seeps through. Students also claim that this building is extremely haunted. Students have claimed to see the apparitions of deceased patients as well as shadow figures, disembodied voices, footsteps, and screams have all been reported. While Wells College has many urban legends attached to it, perhaps the most famous is the ghost of Mrs. Wells, Henry Wells' wife. It's said that Henry Wells' wife has discovered that he was having an affair with a young student living in Pettibone House. Some versions of this legend claim that it was Miss Pettibone herself. I have no idea who Mrs. Pettibone is, by the way. I had a hard time finding any information about that. Or that it was a secretary who was being boarded in the home, but it was actually Henry Wells secretary. Regardless of who it was, this is the legend. Mrs. Wells found out about her husband's affair and instead of confront him, she decided to pretend like she knew nothing. One night, Mrs. Wells snuck out of her house at Glen Park undetected. She crossed the bridge and went in the direction of the Pettibone house. On her way to the building, she ended up finding her husband's mistress who was out for a walk. Mrs. Wells approached her, telling her that she would like to talk to her. Out of nowhere, Mrs. Wells pulled a knife that was hidden in the folds of her dress and stabbed the other woman to death. 
death. After this, she went back home covered in blood. Now the ghost of Mrs. Wells stalks the grounds and the bridge with bloodstains on her dress still looking for any woman daring to challenge her. It's said that if you cross the bridge in front of Glen Park at night and one of the lights go out, don't look behind you. Because if you do, you might see the ghost of Mrs. Wells standing behind you with a knife in her hand. According to the legend, if you ever speak to the ghost of Mrs. Wells, she will mistake you for her husband's mistress and come after you with the knife. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode as I covered some haunted colleges. If you didn't hear your favorite school, let me know what schools you'd like me to cover next time. I already have a little list here of some other campuses that I wish I had time to do today, so we're definitely going to be doing a part two sometime in the future. If you would like to look further into the history of these college campuses and the ghost stories I told, I have a link to all of my sources that I used for this episode down below in the show notes, just like I do for every episode. If you would like to keep up with Historically Haunted, please follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I have links to all those pages down below in the show notes as well as my Patreon page. Now that this episode is done, I am officially working on the Halloween episodes. Like I discussed, no new episode coming out in September, so I have time to do all of my Halloween episodes. I will be posting some bonus episodes on my Patreon page though, so if you're interested, you can go check those out. I will also be posting an older Patreon episode. That way, all of you have something new to listen to for the month of September. And that is it for today. So thank you all so much again for joining me and I hope that you guys had a really fun time checking out all these haunted colleges. I am really excited that it's fall because I do love watching college sports. I'm ready for football. I'm ready for volleyball and March Madness of course will come later but right now I'm into the fall sports like volleyball and football. Super stoked for those. I hope that you all have a good month of September and I will see you all for new episodes in October. Bye everybody. Bye everybody.